0: Thank you, Brother Kevin, for that reading. Let me turn this on here. Uh, I'd like to start off by saying it's good to be home. Uh, I know in the weeks since I've been here, uh, most of y'all have seen me a good bit, but it's still really glad to be back here and uh, glad to be speaking before each of you again. Um, I'd like to start off by saying that my lesson for this evening is not necessarily geared for the people in this room in the sense that. It's not something that no one here doesn't already know or shouldn't already know, but it is something that I would like for you, and the reason I wrote it is for us to take out into the world and to use to help bring those in the world around us closer to Christ. So I'd like to go ahead and start off uh, with the reading up on the PowerPoint behind me, which is Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and oremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So before our discussion for the evening, I'd like to go ahead and just set aside some ground rules that we're going to start for the evening. The first of these is that hell is a very real place that exists it is real. It is not some fantasy. It is not some baseless threat. It is a real place that we face the possible danger of, of winding up in. It is a place reserved for sinners. It is a place reserved for the devil. And it is a place reserved for his angels. And hell, as it's often portrayed in popular culture, it is not a place of punishments. It's not some place where people face different specific punishments. Hell itself is the punishment. It is separation from God, it is eternal darkness, and it is eternal damnation. I want to start very clearly by establishing that hell is a very real place where these threats exist. In Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31, it reads, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Skipping down to verse 41 in the same chapter. Then how shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was in hunger, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then he shall answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment." but the righteous and to life eternal. We see here the exact people that hell is reserved for. With the last verse and this one that we're using now. Hell is reserved for sinners. It's reserved for people who were not there for God, who did not serve God and do not worship God. Moving on to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7, and it reads, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Yes. Move it down. Yeah. Is that better? Gotcha. When talking about hell, it's oftentimes the world really likes to shy away from the reality of the situation with it. Even the religious world, to some extent, likes to shy away from the horror that is hell. And it's because it's a sad thought. Eternal separation from God. The second death. True death. It's heartbreaking to think about. And it's a scary thought. To think about. But yet the Bible is perfectly clear that hell is reserved for these three groups or three categories or descriptions of people. It says it is reserved for the devil. It is reserved for his angels or demons, whichever you would prefer to call them. And it is reserved for sinners who have turned their backs on God. And I'm sad to say that I have a, that a majority of hell will be filled with that last category. It will be men and women just like us, but who are not in God and not in Christ and who have walked this life not in God and not in Christ and will face the punishment that is due for sin. In Revelation chapter 20, and verse 10, it reads, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is a pretty vivid description of the process of what will happen to those who are righteous in God's eyes and those who are not. And the fact is, righteous or unrighteous, all of mankind has truly fallen short. We've all fallen short of the glory and of the majesty of God. And a lot of people like to think that hell is reserved for the really bad people. They like to think it's like some supermax prison for the worst criminals of history. They like to think, oh, well, that's just, that's just for the dictators. That's just for the murderers. That's just for, for history's worst people. That's who hell is for That's not what it says. It says the liars. It says the thieves. covetousness. In God's eyes all sin is equal and in God's eyes all sin is punishable by this second death. But too many people like to plead that it's not me because I'm a good person and a lot of people think that they're good people and in by some people's basis, they would be good people. But it is not enough to simply be a quote unquote good person. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, it reads, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is not one, per- not but one person who has walked this earth. Who is truly righteous. Who if you looked at what they did with their lives. Were truly all the way through. Good holy people. And there's a great many people. Who would classify themselves as good people. And they like to make this hierarchy of sins. They like to say well the, the murder. And the, the lying. And the, the stealing. That's we'll, we'll put that up top. And then we'll, we'll put. We'll put maybe idolatry a little lower or maybe we'll put adultery a little bit lower. They like to they like to rank sins in their minds and say what is good and what is bad and what's worse. And they like to say, well, isn't that enough? I don't do these horrific things. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't hurt anybody in any way. Shouldn't that be enough? In Isaiah chapter 59, and verse 1, it reads, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not heal. hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue hath muttered perverseness. None calleth for justice, nor any pleadeth for truth. They trust in vanity and speak lives. They conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. The simple fact is, is that it is our sins, even the ones that we think that are smaller than others, that have separated us personally from God. And it is because of our transgression against God that we deserve punishment. From the get-go, God told Adam and Eve that the punishment for sin was death. and That's what it's always been. And since Adam and Eve's first sin, any time a sin has been committed, there has been a death, either physical or spiritual. Something has died. It has nothing to do with what God has done, and everything to do with what we are responsible for. We are responsible for our own sins. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, an excerpt from what we just had Kevin read for us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The simple fact is, brothers and sisters, when we are saved, we are not saved by our own works, by our own actions, because no amount of good actions that we do can truly balance out the sin that we've committed. We cannot save ourselves. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, it reads, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This right here is the exact example of someone who thinks they won't be going to hell simply because they're a good person. They say, Lord, God, look at all these things that I've done. Look at all these good things I've done. And for you, I believed in you. And he says, depart from me, I never knew ye. So this tells us that not only is it not enough to simply be a good person, it's not even enough to simply believe. Because these people believed. These people described here in Jesus' parable. They believed in God, but that doesn't necessarily mean they will be saved. So it's not our works that save us, it's not our good actions And it's not simply our belief in God. So, what is it? What is it that saves us? Because surely there is a way for us to be saved. In James chapter 2 and verse 19, it reads, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. The devils will not be saved simply because they believe in God and they believe in Christ. Oh, they believe in Him, they know He's there. That's not enough. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 20, it reads, For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things, whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Says it right there. Our salvation, it is nothing but a gift. And God offers us that gift. Not because we're good people. Not even because we're simply believers. That's not what saves us. But it is God's grace and his love of us that he has given to us. I'd like to look here at this verse. In verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. What does that word imply? Wages. A wage, what is that? That's something you earn. That's something you work for. We worked for our sin. And we worked to earn that death. That's something that we've done. That's something we've earned. That's what we deserve, is death. We did something to deserve that death. But what does it say about eternal life? It says it's a gift. Do you do anything to earn a gift? No. No. A gift is not something that you can achieve. A gift is something that someone out of the goodness of their hearts gives to you. And that's what God has given to us. A gift. We earned our place in the lake of fire. We worked for it with every lie we told, with every naughty word that we said, with every little piece of candy we stole, whatever it may be. Every sin you commit has earned your place in hell with the devil. And the world has ideas about salvation. It thinks it knows what's right and what's wrong and what, what will get me out of this damnation. Some say that good actions will result in good karma. The belief that what you do in this life will earn you what you get in the next life. That being a good person will mean that 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 makes things better for you. That's what will save you. Some say that it's just, just be kind. Just be kind to everyone. Just love everyone. Just accept everyone. And we should be kind to everyone. We should love everyone. But that itself is not enough to save us from our sins. It is not enough. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 10 it reads, Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no salvation in any other person. For there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Muhammad cannot offer salvation. There is no other religious figure that can come forward and offer salvation other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no other way. We have to be saved through Jesus. Only his method of salvation is the acceptable one when it comes to being saved in the eyes of God. It's the only way. It is the only way that God will look at you and say, yes, I will pass over you. Why? Because Jesus lived a perfect life. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, it reads, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. This is why Jesus's method of salvation is worthwhile, is why it's valid. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need because he came to this earth and he lived like every single one of us. And where we are faced with temptations every day, he was met the same. In some cases, possibly even greater temptations than any of us have ever known. And yet, not once did Jesus Christ sin. Not once did Jesus Christ falter. Jesus' salvation works because Jesus is the true, one and only, Son of God. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13 it reads, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist." Some Elias and others, Jeremias, are one of the prophets. This is what people thought Jesus was. But sometimes people turn to these other people for salvation. Sometimes people look to other places for their salvation. Other men who claim to be holy. Who claim to be righteous. Righteous. He, that being Jesus, saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. That is why Jesus' path to salvation works. Because he is the Son of God himself, because he is God himself. He is the only one who has the right to offer a path of salvation. And Jesus' salvation works because he died and faced that separation from God in order to bear our due punishment. Those wages that we earned, that death that we deserved, that we spent all those years of our lives building up, Jesus paid every single one. And he was the first man and the only man who, while his time on earth, could honestly say that at any point in his life, he was completely, utterly alone. As he hung on that cross and God turned away. Jesus suffered hell in that moment. Because that is what hell is, is the separation from God. And Jesus lived through it. For you and me. In first Peter chapter twenty one, verse twenty five or chapter two and verse twenty one through verse twenty five it reads, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who then who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bare our sins in his own body, on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should, excuse me, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Christ Jesus has already bore the punishment that is our due payment. He's taken it. He's taken it upon himself. And he is offering you, and God is offering you, this gift of salvation. So the question that I'm sure anyone who would knowing that and believing that would have is how am I to partake of that gift? How can I be saved through Christ? There's four crucial steps to Christ's salvation. And they each flow perfectly one into the other and cannot fully be completed without the others. In Acts chapter 2 verse 32 through 41, we're going to read a recounting of one of these of some of these four steps. This Jesus hath God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Three things were mentioned here. It said, repent and be baptized. We see the repentance in their hearts when they ask and plead, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's repentance, a desire to change, a recognition that they have messed up, that they have sinned, And that they need a change in their lives. And Peter commanded them to be baptized. And 3,000 were. Which means 3,000 believed. Because you're not going to be baptized if you don't believe. That's why these people who baptize little babies. Who don't know next to anything. That does nothing but gets a baby wet and upset for a little bit. Jesus said that if you believe and be baptized, you will be saved, but he who believeth not shall be damned. And people like to point at that and say, ah, he didn't say, baptized not shall be damned. Of course not. Because if you don't believe, why would you be baptized? It makes no sense. Moving on to Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship. Was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. This guy already believed in God. This guy already had the belief down. But as we see here, there's more to the story. So clearly, that belief alone is not enough. Then, said, then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near, and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet of this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When someone comes forward in this building and they are baptized and they are partaking of Christ, and they are taking on that gift that God has offered us, we have them say those words, that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, because that confession is important. That confession is something that needs to happen. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Moving on to Acts chapter 9, verse 17, we hear another recounting of a man accepting the gospel. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hath sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled With the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed, and said, Is not this he that destroyed them? which called on this name in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent, that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. I spoke earlier and mentioned that all sins are equal in the eyes of God, that all sin is punishable by death, and that's true. But at the same time, all sin can be forgiven in Christ Jesus. In people's hierarchy of sins, if you look at Saul, he was the worst of the worst. Saul went around getting permission to round people up, imprison them, accuse them of things that they had not done, or accuse them of things that they had done, being followers of Christ. And he would have them arrested and killed on several occasions. Saul was a murderer. And he recognized that. And yet still, Saul was saved through the baptism of Christ and became an apostle. A privilege that only 14 men in this world had the pleasure of being. Saul became Paul, an apostle of Christ. And immediately after, he went and he preached Christ. That sounds like a confession to me. And immediately after that, You see this change in his life. You see clear signs of repentance in the Apostle Paul. In Acts 16, verse 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosened. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That sounds an awful lot like a man who believes, doesn't it? What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. If it was enough simply to believe... Why did this man be baptized? Why was this man baptized? What was the point? And if it was enough for just his belief. They told him, believe on the Lord and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And yet it says that he was baptized and his entire house was baptized. That tells us that baptism is important, doesn't it? That tells us that there's more to it than just the simple belief that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now there are four clear steps that are brought up multiple times in each of these verses. I have it labeled here on the chart behind me, and I have an X marked each each time in these recountings when one of these four steps was mentioned or implied by the actions the people took in these recollections of how these people were saved, of how these people became followers of Christ. You may notice only one of those four was mentioned every single time. Without fail. Because the acceptance of the gospel is completed through baptism. That belief is there, that belief in God, that belief in Jesus. And we take that belief in. And with that belief, we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And through repentance, we put to death the old man of sin and of shame, and of humiliation, and of absence of God. We put that old man to death, much like Christ Jesus was put to death on a cross. And then after that, we are buried underwater with those sins, much like Christ Jesus was buried in the ground with those sins. And we arise out of that water a new man, a new woman, A new believer in Christ Jesus. Much like three days after the body was laid in the grave, he rose again and ascended to heaven where he's been ever since. Brothers and sisters, I beg of you, if you have not done of these things, do not delay. Please, Don't wait for another time, because we're not guaranteed another time. And the fact is that anyone who dies outside of this gospel, outside of Christ Jesus' gospel, like the scripture says, is facing the dangers of hellfire and torment. It's real. It's out there, and it's a true threat for each and every man and woman that has ever walked, and that will walk, and that is walking on this earth. Don't delay any longer. In John chapter three, verse five and seven, it re- verse five through seven, it reads: Jesus answered, "Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God." That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. There's no way around it. This evening, if you have yet to partake of the gospel, which I don't believe anyone here falls into that category that is ready, but perhaps if you did partake of the gospel and you're finding yourself that Maybe when you did, you didn't do it for the right reasons. Maybe you didn't do it for the remission of sins. Maybe you did it for some other reason. And you want to partake of that baptism again. We will not stop you. Or if you have and you've fallen short. And you've faltered from the way of Christ Jesus. And you need the prayers of the church. And you need us to to pray for you. That you can have the strength to keep on going with that life. Then we also ask you to come forward. If you be of either of the three groups, we ask that you come forward as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.